Mr. President, you have stated as your goal that America should remain the world's strongest force for peace, liberty, prosperity, and security so that we can build a future for the next generation. All nations in the democratic community have a responsibility to make it clear through our actions and our words that efforts to overturn constitutional regimes or steal elections are unacceptable. To those who care deeply about America's engagement and indispensable leadership in the world, you will find no stronger advocate for that cause than Samantha. As the most powerful and inspiring country on this earth, we have a critical role to play in insisting that the institution meet the necessities of our time. It can do so only with American leadership. Hello and welcome back to Barely Getting By the Long 1990s. So Emma, in the last installment, we noted that the 90s saw the birth of this idea of humanitarian war. That's, or a humanitarian intervention. That's something that has become quite messy and even even something that's the object of a lot of regret from the USA. Um, when you spoke about that, I, I was reminded of President Obama in 2012 when he was very publicly deliberating over whether or not to invade in Syria. And I guess I'm kind of wondering about how, how we got from you know, this sort of confidence around the idea of humanitarian intervention in the 1990s to Obama really publicly worrying about what that, could, what that would mean and what that would look like. Look, I think that's a really good question, and I do think we at least partly find the origins of that deliberation and that absolute mess in the 1990s. Of course, it is part of a much longer history of American leaders grappling with American failures in, in places, of course, like the Vietnam War. But I think... Partly the 1990s is responsible for that mess because at the beginning of the decade, in, in 1989, in Panama, and then in the first Gulf War, things seem relatively uncomplicated. It looks like the United States can go in and affect regime change. It can execute a fairly clean, quick war with minimal American casualties. What happens from then on, from 1991 onwards, is things start to get really messy. And that's when we see this kind of inability of American leadership to reconcile ideas and interests that is then repeated again and again and is what we saw Barack Obama grappling with when it came to Syria, you know, in more recent years. We're going to start this story in Somalia in 1991. That's right, because I think Somalia is is the point at which the the complications in humanitarian intervention in the 1990s become abundantly clear. So I, I think listeners might be vaguely familiar with the story of Somalia from that famous film Black Hawk Down. I, well, to be honest, I'm not. I was definitely not allowed to see Black Hawk Down. I think it came out when I was probably in my very early teens. No, yeah, I think it's one of those films that, you know, even if I had been allowed to see it, um, I probably wouldn't have wanted to go and see it. You know, not even the fact that it stars uh, 90s teen heartthrob Josh Hartnett was enough to get me there. Um, But the movie's important for our purposes because it tells the story of an an incident that would go on to become very important to both um, United Nations peacekeeping missions in the 1990s and also the US's involvement in the world. So at the end of the Cold War, Somalia is like a lot of places in that it is 
left awash with weapons and factional conflicts that are partly the result or mostly the result of the Cold War and the United States and the Soviet Union outsourcing their conflicts um, into proxy wars, you know, funding uh, various factions and supplying them with, with weapons. And what happens in Somalia um, at the end of the Cold War is that that situation then turns into an all-out civil war and also mass starvation. So we have a humanitarian crisis in Somalia, which has become, in, in the language of the day, has become a failed state. In 1992, the United Nations sends a peacekeeping mission, so just over 25,000 United States troops head there. And the following year, in 1993, a Somali faction attacks some Pakistani peacekeepers and murders them. As a result of that, President Bill Clinton orders a hunt for the attackers. And I think, you know, the assumption is that the United States, of course, will triumph in this situation as it always has done. But what actually happens is a Somali faction shoots down the Black Hawk helicopter and 18 Americans die. So it's an absolute disaster for the United States and for the Clinton administration. And, and as a result of that, the United States withdraws completely from Somalia. And not only does that leave Somalia in a pretty disastrous situa situation, it also leads to a complete rethink in American foreign policy under Clinton. So the lesson, I suppose, that is learnt out of Somalia is that the United States shouldn't get involved in messy conflicts far from its shores, and that it's only going to get involved in these kind of conflicts if there's a threat to vital American interests, if there are clear objectives, but also if the conflict, wherever it is, is a threat to international peace and security or involves massive human rights violations. So this is a big change for American foreign policy and critics um, were pretty strong because it, I think, really threatened that idea of the United States as kind of the world's policeman, I suppose. So critics described it as, as self-containment. And of course, that's quite a, a powerful criticism of the US because it it harkens back to the isolationist policies that were adopted by the USA at various points in its sort of earlier history in the 20th century, and that most famously led it to refrain from getting involved in the Second World War until until 1941 with the bombing of the bombing of Pearl Harbor, and and that's also something that Donald Trump is certainly flirting with now, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think it is. And, and I think you're right to bring up those um, the way that that criticism is framed because I think also a lot of those same critics would say that that policy, that policy of, of isolating, in air quotes, the United States from the world is what led to an unchecked genocide in Rwanda. The international community, together with nations in Africa, must bear its share of responsibility for this tragedy as well. We did not act quickly enough after the killing began. We should not have allowed the refugee camps to become safe haven for the killers. We did not immediately call these crimes by their rightful name, genocide. We cannot change the past, but we can and must do everything in our power to help you build a future without fear. And 
And of course, that's where that's where we're going next. So, Emma, can you tell me a little bit about Rwanda and the the context for the genocide there? I can. Um, I will start by saying that I am far from an expert in this, and I won't be able to do it justice to do the kind of complexities of this justice in the short amount of time that we have. Having said that, you know, Rwanda is like a lot of, um, I suppose, post-colonial nations in that it is it is the result of old white blokes drawing lines on a map with complete disregard for the culture and history of a place. And so in the 1990s, that degenerates into conflicts between two ethnic groups, between the Hutus and the Tutsis. There is a United Nations peacekeeping mission that's set up in 1993, UNAMIA, that I'm sure many people will be familiar with, um, you know, if only through its representations in, in popular culture. And the head of that peacekeeping mission, Delaire, warns, gets wind, basically, that genocide is imminent, that Hutu extremists are planning genocide against the Tutsis and, and Hutu moderates. And he warns the United Nations that this is going to happen. The United Nations does nothing. And the following year, 1994, the leader of the Hutus dies, and this triggers a genocide. Ten Belgian peacekeepers are killed during this um, killing spree, and the United Nations withdraws. The United States, for its part, refuses to act, and between April and July of 1994, between about 800,000 and 1 million Tutsis are killed in what is undoubtedly a genocide. Okay, so... Tell me why, I mean, in the first instance, why, did, why didn't the UN act to stop this genocide? I guess I, guess I would respond to that by saying that the United Nations is, is you know, the sum of its parts. When the, when the countries of the United Nations, dominated, of course, by the United States, aren't interested in acting, the United Nations won't act. And part of the lessons that come out of Somalia and other conflicts at this time is that it doesn't pay to get involved in these messy conflicts. So the UN is kind of hamstrung, it's flailing, and it doesn't know what to do. And that is mostly because the United States doesn't want to act. Okay, and I think you've given us a pretty good indication of why the the United States might not act following these changes to its foreign policy after Somalia. Can you give us a bit more clarity about why specifically it didn't act in Rwanda? Sure. Well, I think, you know, Samantha Power, to go back to our our conversation in part one, writes about this really powerfully. And she gives a number of reasons why the United States doesn't want to act. Part Part of it is, you know, I guess, more cold calculations, such as, you know, having no strategic interest in the country. A big part of it is racism. Um, you know, it's it's the unwillingness to sacrifice white American lives for the lives of black people in a country far away and, and an assumption that this is a kind of tribal conflict. And I'm using the word tribal in, in air quotes. And that's also connected to, I think, uh, you know, there's there's very little media coverage of what's happening at the time. So the, the Clinton administration doesn't feel that kind of pressure to act. Okay, so it wasn't it wasn't in their interests. You said before that part of this reorientation of American foreign policy after Somalia sort of laid down that one of the conditions under which the US would act to intervene in another nation was in the case of massive human rights violations. And I'm going to play dumb here and say surely a genocide of somewhere around one million people surely that counts as a massive human rights as a massive as a massive human rights violation absolutely it absolutely does and and 
they knew that this was happening at the time and were being asked about it by the, by the media sometimes. So the State Department at this time is actually State Department spokespeople are directed to specifically not to use the word genocide because using the word genocide would then compel the United States to act both under its own policy but also under international law. So the State Department refuses to even say the word genocide. A little bit later, they start calling it acts of genocide um, which is, of course, kind of ridiculous, and they are pilloried for saying that because how many acts of genocide, you know, makes a genocide? But it's it's a kind of inter- indication, I think, of just how reluctant the administration is to get involved. Um, I'm going to play devil's advocate here and ask you what the US might have done. I think that's a really good question. It's a really important one to ask because when, you know, we make assumptions about the United States and, you know, whether or not it should intervene, it's really important to ask, I think, what it could do because we shouldn't assume that it's going to be easy because history tells us it's not not going to be easy. Having said that, in the case of Rwanda, Samantha Power, um, I I think fairly compellingly argues that the United States could have taken a few simple steps to at least reduce the number of deaths. So they could have done things like take out radio signal towers. So a lot of the coordination of the genocide and also the kind of whipping up of people into a frenzy is done through radio communication. If the US takes out the radio towers, they take out that coordination and they kind of, I guess, reduce the heat a little bit. So the US could have done, I think, there or there is at least an argument that the US could have done things like that. You know, things that fall well short of a, of an all-out invasion, but you know, I guess as we know in the end, they chose to do nothing. And would you say that that's something, you know, those sorts of strategic interventions that you're talking about, that fall that of course falls falls well short of the sort of regime change that you've spoken about before in the case of say Panama? and what eventuated in Afghanistan and Iraq. That's right. I think, you know, what a lot of people were asking for at this time, they would suggest was was not much. You know, they're not asking for, for regime change. They're not asking for an, a full-blown United States military intervention. They're asking for the United States to help. And because the United States has set itself up as the kind of moral beacon of the world, it has a responsibility to do that. Okay, so... so- to, to bring this together, what you're telling me is about a, a test of US foreign policy and US resolve where it failed by the own standards that it had set for itself and the own criteria that it had set for, for itself in terms of what would induce it to, to make an intervention in a foreign country. In our next instalment of this episode of Barely Getting By, we're going to turn to another example that demonstrates the way that American foreign policy was tested and troubled in the 1990s, and that will be, we talk about American involvement in the breakup of the former Yugoslavia and in Kosovo. Barely Getting By is supported and produced by RMIT University. Original music by Stuart Cullen.